Read and hear more about important news, events, and public policy debates at ncnewsline.com. This is News and Views. Welcome back to News and Views. I'm Rob Schofield. Most Americans are aware of the outsized impact that rulings from the U.S. Supreme Court can have on our society. But as a steady drumbeat of stories from NC Newsline investigative reporter Kellen Lyons made clear in 2023, the state civil and criminal justice systems can also be hugely impactful and deserving of our close attention. Recently, Kellen and I sat down for a two-part conversation in which we looked back at some of the top North Carolina courts and justice stories from 2023. In part one of our chat, we discussed a state court of appeals decision in which a panel of judges ruled that, quote, life begins at conception and how Kell's reporting likely led to it being withdrawn. We also discussed an end-of-year campaign launched by opponents of the death penalty and the tragic story of a man who effectively got lost in the state prison system. Well, Kellen Lyons, welcome to News and Views. Happy New Year. Good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. So, my goodness, so many important judicial rulings and court cases in 2023. We could spend hours talking about them, but you reported on several, and there's some high-profile ones we want to lift up here that really deserve our attention one of them was, was one where your reporting seems to have sort of had an impact on how our courts ultimately ruled, and that had to do with a rather surprising ruling that came out of the Court of Appeals that involved termination of parental rights, right? Yeah, there was a case involving a mother who lost her parental rights because she committed a crime when she was pregnant with, with one of her children. So she committed a crime against another child living in the home, and she had argued, her lawyers had argued that she shouldn't lose rights to her the child that was in utero because that child was not residing in the household at the same time as as the other child and the judge the court of appeals judge said that well you know life begins at conception and so technically that fetus was residing in the home and it was it really stuck out to me and i reached out to some folks to make sure that my non-lawyer brain wasn't picking something that didn't exist and sure enough, it was a big deal. I mean, it was a big deal hidden in an otherwise anodyne court decision, the kind of court decisions that are decided, many that are decided over the course of the year by the Court of Appeals involving parental rights. So this judge, more or less on their own motion, made this rather uh, bold declaration that life begins at conception. And as it turned out, that ended up not standing. Yes, I wrote a follow-up story about how this decision was an extraordinary action for the Court of Appeals to take without direction from the state Supreme Court, without legislators. And, you know, I've written since then and, and have showed that, that that judge who wrote that decision actually is running for re-election in a primary. Uh, he's a Republican running against another Republican in a primary. And one of the judges who signed on to that decision is running for a seat on the state Supreme Court. The opinion's been withdrawn or am I right? Yeah, the opinion has been withdrawn. I mean, after I wrote a couple of stories about the implications, they they ended up withdrawing it, which effectively makes it as though it wasn't written, which is not a uh, very common thing. You know, I don't know whether my reporting had anything to do with that, but I would say that it definitely got some eyes and some some discussion about the subject. I don't think there's much doubt about it. Another issue that uh, is one of your most recent stories, a, a major piece of investigative and enterprise journalism has to do with death row in North Carolina, where Despite the fact that we haven't had an execution in North Carolina for more than 17 years, we nonetheless maintain hundreds of people on death row and continue to sentence them to death row. And there's a concerted effort by folks, both indeed an international effort, for the governor to take action on that before he leaves office in 2025, right? 
Yeah, so Republicans have really chipped away at the governor's power over the past year. And historically, the governor in North Carolina does not have a ton of power. Now, um, one place where he does have immense authority, though, is is in the clemency process. He can commute any sentence. And so he could commute the sentences of the 136 people on death row. And there's a lot of folks who are worried that should the state Supreme Court overturn the Racial Justice Act, should Republicans in the legislature get this in their sights and decide to to do something like South Carolina did and bring back the firing squad or bring back gas like Alabama, that these folks who are who are on death row could potentially be executed. And so there's a there's a call to essentially they're framing it as potentially saving their lives. The Racial Justice Act was a law that was passed several years ago, later repealed by the Republican legislature, but remains tied up in litigation and it has been a source of holding up the uh, carrying out of many of the executions that might conceivably have otherwise proceeded. Yeah. So a big piece of this story in my reporting has shown that the history of racism is is inextricable from the death penalty in North Carolina and across the country. And that's been, you know, widely discussed and reported elsewhere. But in North Carolina specifically, black North Carolinians disproportionately make up those who are on death row. Of the 12 people who have been exonerated in North Carolina, who meaning they spent time on death row, who didn't commit any crimes, 11 of them were people of color. Only one was white. So all of which is to say that the Racial Justice Act was passed in 2010 to essentially give folks who are who are on death row a try to path to get resentenced to life without parole if they could, you know, argue in court successfully that racism played a role in their sentencing or their conviction. And the numbers are pretty remarkable. When you look at death row in North Carolina, when you look at the sentences that are meted out, it's hard to see how race isn't inextricably intertwined with, with those death sentences in North Carolina. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of rabbit holes I didn't get to go down in that story. But the, I mean, one of the big ones is that with the death penalty even being on the table, it really affects sentencing in North Carolina because it can allow folks who will plead guilty to life without the possibility of parole in exchange for not getting a death sentence. And so there's an untold number of people who are probably in prison today who are serving an LWAP sentence who other who just didn't want to roll the dice with the jury. And we know, in fact, as you said, there are people who have been exonerated after being on death row. And it's hard to imagine that there aren't actually people who were who were executed, who were completely innocent. Again and again, people made that that observation to me or that thought to me that there's in all likelihood we have executed people who are innocent. If we've only if we've exonerated 12, there is a reasonable chance that at one point or another we have executed folks over the course of North Carolina's history. We should point out that when you talk about commutation, we're not necessarily talking about the governor releasing these people, right? Yeah, a commutation is just a substitution of a lesser sentence for a greater one. And so what that would mean is that he really has power here, but all the precedence is that this has happened in other states and they would they would be sentenced to the next highest form of punishment, which would be life without parole. But the clemency campaign is really not making – they're just saying prison terms. I mean they're really leaving it up to the governor to decide. I think there's some discussion in my story that folks were saying that these folks could be particularly well-suited to paroling because they they live in an unusually communal setting in North mm-hmm. Carolina. They're not actually in solitary most of the time like they are in many other states. Many of them are old, which means that they're less likely to reoffend anyway from a data perspective. It's a remarkable set of affairs. We're talking with Kellen Lyons, who's an investigative reporter at NC Newsline, who focuses on our courts and our legal system and our prisons. Speaking of prisons and racism and its very sobering legacy in North Carolina, the story of Bobby Norfleet was one of the more remarkable stories you told during 2023, which involves an individual who spent an awful long time in prison. It's hard to imagine that any person of means would have ever been sentenced or endured such a sentence. Tell us about the Norfleet story. 
Bobby Norfleet went to prison in the late 1970s for setting a porch on fire after a fight with with somebody that he knew. You know, there were questions about his his mental ability to stand trial at the time, and he had an attorney who hadn't had a lot of experience at the time that he took on Bobby's case. This wasn't a big city case, right? No, small rural town, part of North Carolina, and we're and we're talking about a a, a guy who was he, he pled guilty to arson, which at the time in North Carolina carried a mandatory life sentence. So Bobby was in his 20s at the time. He spent more than four decades in prison. And actually, I tracked down his lawyer and talked to his attorney. And his lawyer told me that he expected people who were in Bobby's kind of situation to get paroled at the time because, you know, folks would would plead out and they would expect to get paroled after they served some number of years. But because of the politics around parole, that really shifted over the decades. And, and Bobby really just sat in prison. He paroled in prison. He was abused by his incarcerated peers. He really struggled for a long time. Didn't they actually change the sentencing structure for the offense for which he was convicted shortly after after his conviction? They did, yeah. Like pretty much right after the legislators passed. I mean, a series of reforms. I don't remember the exact year that it went into effect, but yeah, he missed it by not a lot. And I mean, if he were sentenced under modern sentencing standards, he would have spent a lot less time in prison. I don't remember the exact number, but it was, it was, we're talking decades less. I mean, I think he spent 44 in prison for a crime that didn't hurt anyone. And he would have probably spent, I think it was like 19 and that doesn't include good time credits or anything. And the sad, hard reality is that there are a lot of aging prisoners in North Carolina who are maybe convicted and sentenced under not terribly dissimilar circumstances who lack counsel, lack family and Maybe you're just kind of forgotten, right? I had some data and wrote a follow-up story about folks who were incarcerated, who were elderly, and who were eligible for parole. I mean, there's a lot of folks in there who have not gotten an infraction in decades, like 30 years. And an infraction is essentially when they, you know, do something when they do something wrong as deemed by correction staff. And that could be anything from like a fight to like, you know, less serious stuff like mouthing off or not listening to someone. And and then so, you know, we're talking about a population that is really only going to grow as people in North Carolina prisons continue to age and those with long sentences continue to remain behind bars. And so like specifically a, a big part of Bobby's story involved medical release, uh, legislators passed some stuff in the budget that brought in the application criteria, eligibility criteria. But until those folks are really released, I mean, it's really going to cost taxpayers a lot of money as those folks get older and it costs the state a lot of money to, to care for them. Coming up next, part two of my extended conversation with investigative reporter Kellen Lyons. Stay with us. Read and hear more about important news, events, and public policy debates at ncnewsline.com. This is News and Views. Welcome back to News and Views. I'm Rob Schofield. In part one of a two-part conversation I had with NC Newsline investigative reporter Kellen Lyons, we discussed a highly controversial state court of appeals ruling about when life begins, new calls for Governor Cooper to commute the sentences of the state's death row inmates, and the tragic story of a person the state unjustly imprisoned for decades. In part two of our conversation, we discussed Kell's reporting on some other troubling news from the state's prison system and a pair of important court actions with implications for the First Amendment and freedom of the press. You also had a story this year on Scotland County, a correctional facility in southeastern North Carolina, southern North Carolina, Scotland County. Pretty grim conditions that folks there were and are being incarcerated under. 
Yeah, we've heard a lot at the legislature this year about understaffing. Um, staffing is a big problem in the prison system in North Carolina. And legislators have done some things around the edges to try to address that, but there are still there's still a very high vacancy rate, which means that there's a lot of jobs that are open and available, but not many people who are going to try to get them within the correction system. And so what that looks like at places like Scotland Correctional is like people were – which is an overpacked facility. There's folks who are in there who are um, elderly, like Bobby Norfleet was, and who are infirm and sick and who have not been, for one reason or another, have not been approved for medical parole. And there's folks who are like being put into gyms to sleep, from what I've heard. You know, that story, actually, I probably got the most reader feedback of any story I've written at Newsline. I've gotten a lot of letters from folks talking about the conditions there and elsewhere and sort of like saying that Scotland isn't the necessarily the only place that is feeling those effects of, of the understaffing. This isn't a matter of just being tough on prisoners. It's a matter of literally dangerous, very dangerous situations for everybody involved, the guards, the prisoners, the health of everybody. It's, it's just a chronic understaffing in facilities like this that can lead to some really disastrous situations. One of the more stunning things I heard this year was at a conference hosted by NC Cred, which is like a reform advocacy group trying to advocate for better conditions in prison. And there was somebody who was working with the Department of Adult Correction who was talking about Pasquotank in 2017, this prison. These four men tried to escape and they killed four corrections officers. And they were talking about the vacancy rate at that point. And now they were saying that it's even worse now than it was then. And this person said that it's not a question of if this is going to happen. It's a question of when. Four correction officers were killed. And to to have this expectation, at least a prediction, you know, potentially more violence inflicted on staff is is, is an inevitability because of how bad the staffing levels are. To me, it was, it was an extraordinary admission. Which, of course, points to the overcrowding, the over-sentencing of people, and the low pay for officers that we can't attract and really retain the kind of staffing that we need. We're coming to the end of our time with Kellen Lyons, investigative reporter for NC Newsline. We're talking about courts and the law and courts in the justice system in 2023. One last area we wanted to hit on, unrelated really to criminal justice, really, is the First Amendment and press freedoms. And we had a couple of stories you wrote this year on that subject that Maybe didn't vote particularly well for freedom of the press, but they're nonetheless important stories. One out of Asheville and another one out of Richmond County. Tell us about those two stories. Yeah. So I went to Asheville a couple of times this year. There were these two reporters for this, this publication called the Asheville Blade, which is a self-described leftist local news co-op. There's sort of like an alt-weekly sort of a voice in, yeah. in in Asheville, even though Asheville does have an alt-weekly as well, but they're a more progressive, like, leftist sort of organization. And two of their reporters were arrested on Christmas night 2021 for covering police, uh, breaking up folks who were gathering in a public park in Asheville. And they were facing trespassing charges. Their lawyer argued in court that these these reporters were targeted because of their news organization's leftist stance. It's, an abol- it's a police abolitionist news organization that is, like, also very harshly critical of the city of Asheville. You know, they were the only outlet that was there that night, as far as I know. And those reporters, you know, were really making the case, clearly identifying themselves as members of the press to the police who were there and who were clearly trying to say that they were there to to report. And they were the first people arrested that night. There was body cam footage of police saying we should start with these people because they are videotaping. They didn't identify them as reporters, but the reporters identified themselves. And so anyway, I I went to Asheville a couple of times to write about first I did a feature story that contextualized the reporter's arrest kind of speaking to how the arrest was a flashpoint in the city's treatment of homeless, the homeless folks, the homeless population there, as well as its broader issues over affordable housing as that city becomes more and more popular and more and more unaffordable. And those reporters were ultimately convicted. They were convicted once in a bench trial, which means the judge 
said that they were guilty, and then they were convicted again in a jury trial when they appealed. And it was pretty extraordinary. I mean, the prosecutors and the cops portrayed it on the stand as as this sort of like open and shut trespassing case. Like they were told the place is closed, but they they the park was closed. It was night. They needed to leave. And nobody really bought the argument that the First Amendment protected these reporters, which was pretty stunning to me. Probably the most stunning exchange to me was when a police officer said on on the stand testifying that he didn't care whether they were reporters. It meant nothing to me because they were there after hours. And, you know, that was that. That's the Asheville story. The Richmond County story that you had mentioned was I, w- I went to Richmond County to talk with the editor of one of the newspapers there. And, you know, a couple of years ago, this editor got in trouble by a judge, a superior court judge who was there because of there were some questions over the uh, conduct that could be, that could be um, behavior that you could do in his courtroom. And essentially this reporter who is now the editor is worried that this administrative order is affecting his ability to do his job. The order says that you cannot record, you can't use a cell phone in the courthouse. And that is, as far as I can tell, as everyone I talked to, that is fine as far as courtroom proceedings go. But because right. the county commissioners meets in this same courthouse, somebody from the Open Government Coalition told me that this was unconstitutional administrative order. It's just a poorly written order. The order, the order applied to the whole building, right? Yeah, it applies to the whole building. So you can't bring a phone in there. I wrote a pretty big story about like essentially getting the context as to how this all came about, or at least how it was enforced several years ago. And there was another uh, editor at that paper who has since left, who really took this judge off. You know, he brought in the phone, he was recording, and the judge called this reporter back with his editor, and the editor ended up getting jailed overnight. And the editor at the time talked to me and said that he suspected it could be because they were critical of the county and their coverage, and this judge used to work for the county. And so the reporter at the time is now the editor of that paper, and he is essentially afraid of getting in trouble again. His parents are both working in law enforcement. Like, it seems like he has this deep commitment to, like, following authority, but also, like, this judge is, is making it harder for him to do his job. And well, to so, cover a county commission meeting, for instance. To, right. Yeah. I mean, he can't record at a, at a public meeting. That's a pretty remarkable order. Yeah. I mean, the most remarkable thing to me was also the – I went to a county commissioner meeting, and I left my phone in my car, and I saw another reporter from another news outlet in Richmond County re- using his phone recording and taking photos, <laughs> and everyone was fine with that. And even the, even the county commissioners told me, like, we're not going to ding you for not doing that. Uh, for, for using your phone here. So it pretty clearly like isn't evenly enforced and, and is causing a lot of consternation for this Richmond County paper. It causes some real concerns about the First Amendment and press freedoms. It's something that uh, undoubtedly will arise again in 2024. We know you'll be on this subject and certainly the, the state of our courts and the state of our prison and correction system, Kel Lawrence. Thanks for all your hard work. We'll uh, look forward to reading a lot more of your stories in 2024. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this edition of News and Views. Remember, you can check us out online and subscribe for free to some of our state's best news coverage and political commentary at ncnewsline.com. You can also listen to all of our interviews and commentaries wherever you get your podcasts. For producer Clayton Henkel, this is Rob Schofield. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to News and Views, a weekly look at state news, events, and public policy debates produced by North Carolina Newsline. Visit them online at ncnewsline.com. 